Hello, and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. The NFL Super Bowl is one of the few remaining national media events. Parties happen, food and drink consumed, bets won and lost, and before Monday, it's gone. Lead teacher Jeff Norris continues the series Ecclesiastes with this sermon entitled The Vanity of Pleasures, which covers Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. For more information and to watch or hear other sermons, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Good morning, Perimeter Church. Today's scripture reading comes from Ecclesiastes 2, 1 to 11. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been born before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasures of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God, thank you, Joan. Let's read aloud together our prayer of illumination. Blessed Lord, you have caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning. Grant us that we may in such a way hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. Well, it would have been the the spring of 2003. I was in my first year of serving on staff with Campus Crusade for Christ, as it was known back then, crew as we know it now serving as a campus minister at uh, the University of Southern Mississippi in, in Hattiesburg. And I had just recently heard a speaker uh, walk through a potential type of conversation to have with someone who doesn't believe in Christ. And I wanted to mimic it. I wanted to actually have that conversation in real life on campus. And so this particular day, some of us had gone out 
on campus, and we were just seeking to engage with students and, and strike up conversation with them. And I got into this conversation with a young man that I think was, if I remember correctly, a sophomore there in college. And, um, and I asked him a question that sparked the conversation. I said, I said, so what, what are your goals in college? What is it that you want to accomplish and be true of you when you graduate? And uh, this guy, he had, uh, he had pretty significant aspirations. I remember him talking about wanting to graduate with a 4.0 and with honors uh, near the top of his class, those kind of things. I said, man, that's great. Then what? what? What would you like to do after that? What would you like to be true of you after that? And he, uh, he said, well, I guess I would want to get a good job out of college, one that pays well and where I can go ahead and start, be, uh, start saving money and being responsible in that way. And I said, great, then what? Well, I think I'd want to eventually, you know, climb the ladder of that company such that, or any other company that where maybe one day I could be a CEO and maybe even start my own business and be an entrepreneur of sorts. I said, great, great, then what? And uh, he said, well, you know, at some point along the way, he said, I, I, you know, I would like to get married, find the love of my life, have children, raise a family. Awesome. Then what? what? What would come after that? And um, we kept going with this all the way through. And he was starting to get a little more irritated every time I asked, then what? But eventually we got to the very end of it all. And, and, and I, my last then what question was, he, he said, well, I, I, guess, I guess I die. It wasn't my last then what question because then I said, then what? And... Uh, he said, I don't, yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, I guess just go back in the ground kind of thing. And I said, hmm, okay. So it was, a, it was a conversation aimed at getting the person to think about eternity. What happens after death? But I remember asking him something along the lines in the midst of our conversation, this as well. Not just what happens then, which is significant, obviously critical question. But I remember asking him this question. So what's the meaning of all that that you just walked through? It's not then what, but so what? So what? Like, so what's the point? What's the meaning of, of this thing we call life? That is, that question is perhaps the most critical question that we wrestle with as humans. Believer and non-believer alike. I mean, every person wrestles with that and wonders, what is the meaning and the purpose of life? And to an extent, we're terrified by the answer of that question. And, and as a result, we don't ask it all that often to ourselves because we're a little afraid of the implications of the answer to that question. But it is at the core of the human existence. What is the point of all this? And all of us have wrestled with it, even if not openly, certainly inwardly, privately, alone. What is the meaning of life. Enter the book of Ecclesiastes, where Ecclesiastes points us in a direction that on the surface, as we read through it, maybe you've done what Eric asked us to do last week, where we've listened through it maybe once or twice, hopefully this week. And on the surface, you, you get to the end of it and you might conclude that the point of Ecclesiastes is to basically shout in our faces, there is no meaning. Life doesn't have meaning. It's all vanity. It's all pointless. It's all meaningless. And then you would go, why are we studying this book? And why are we studying it in February when it's rainy and gloomy? Like, come on, could we have done this in July? Like, why? 
This is a book that we love to avoid in our quiet times in our, in, and in our corporate worship. We just don't, we don't know what to do with it. We don't know what to do with this book. We read it and we go, oh, well, that kind of stinks. We don't know what to do, you know, the Job's of the book, you know, Job, we don't know what to do with Job. It makes us feel uncomfortable about God, that God would let Satan do what he does. It makes us feel uncomfortable that, that God gives and takes away. It, it makes us feel uncomfortable that God just kind of uh, puts it in the face of Job and says, hey, were you there when I created everything? Who are you to talk back to me? We don't know what to do with Job. We don't know what to do with Ecclesiastes. We love the Psalms for the most part because they make us feel good. And that's good, it's important. The Psalms are amazing. We're not very good at entering into the deep waters of things that make us uncomfortable. So we need to stare, even as we looked last week, we need to stare into the darkness. We need to stare into the meaningless, meaninglessness of all the things and wonder what's the point and what's God up to and where do I fit into all this and does it really matter? I like the way that uh, Philip Ryken in his book, Why Everything Matters, the way he put it, he said this, our unsatisfied longings are a spiritual clue that we were made to enjoy the pleasures of God. This is why Ecclesiastes is in the Bible. It is here to convince us that satisfaction only comes in God himself. The world is not enough. Ecclesiastes does not show us this to make us discouraged or depressed but to drive us back to God. This is not all there is. We were made for another world. I think Ecclesiastes is a great book to read with friends and family, coworkers who don't believe in God. You go, really? Well, here's why. Because it puts us at a certain level on level, level playing field. Because it gives us the opportunity as those who do believe in God, who do believe in this thing about Jesus and the gospel and all that comes with that. But it gives us the opportunity through a book in the Bible to identify and say, you know what? Listen, we don't believe the same, but we have more in common than you think. Because I feel the vanity with you. I don't have all the answers. Just because I'm a Christian and believe, believe this doesn't mean I have all the answers. Life is really, really hard. And like you, it, it, I agree with you, it doesn't often make sense. Ecclesiastes gives us that opportunity to say that. Say, I feel all this with you. One of the best things that we can do as Christians is, is to say to those who don't agree with us in our belief system, to be able to say to them, look, just because I think that Jesus is the way doesn't mean I have all the answers. It doesn't make life easier. I'm right there in it with you. I've just found the one who brings meaning in the point of, in, in, the, in the, the, the realm of meaninglessness. Last week, we kind of laid a foundation for where this book is headed. Was it written by Solomon? We don't know. It very well could have been. Many scholars today think that it was written after Solomon died, many years, in fact, centuries after Solomon died. And it was someone uh, writing retrospectively from the perspective of Solomon, perhaps, maybe. We don't, we don't know for sure. But the bottom line is that it was someone who's experienced all that there is ex to experience in life and is coming to some very hard conclusions. 
the author, whoever that person may be, is termed throughout the book as the preacher. And so that's how we'll refer to him throughout this series. And after kind of laying the table last week of saying, look, everything's meaningless. Everything's vanity. There is no purpose in any of it, which is hard to digest and hard to think about apart from God. He then gets to into in chapter two where we're headed today. He begins to walk through specifically, this is what I chased after. This is what I ran after. I'm gonna, I'm gonna share with you, this is the, the preacher speaking. I'm gonna, I'm gonna share with you everything that I ran after trying to find meaning and purpose. Uh, Zach Eswine in, the, in his book, Recovering Eden, he said this, the Bible raises a question in Ecclesiastes two that every human being asks. Here's the question. Is there a thing in the world that can truly satisfy the heart of a human being? Is there a thing in the world, anything, that can truly satisfy the heart of a human being? This is right here in verse one this of chapter two. This is what the preacher is chasing after. Is there anything? Because look what he says. He says, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. And that word test is a, is a word that just simply means I'm gonna experiment. Through personal experience, I'm gonna just dive in and see what it has to offer. And I'm gonna chase after everything that my heart longs for and see if it brings any meaning. And so the nature of where he's headed in chapter two and where we're headed this morning is this. What about all these various pleasures of life that are really Fleeting, he'll find that to be true, that they're fleeting. But all these pleasures, any of them, would there be one that satisfies the human heart? Here's just as a way of kind of leading us into what we're gonna walk through here for the next few minutes. Here's how, how pleasures, the fleeting nature of pleasures work. Here's how it works in our lives. About a, year, a little over a year ago, I was, uh, I was flying to Egypt to visit some of our ministry partners there. Some of you may remember when we went on that trip. And... Um, I have flown many places throughout the world over the years. First time I had flown to Egypt, but I've never flown in anything other than coach. And uh, for a 6'2 guy on the larger side of things, that's not always fun, right? For an eight, nine, 10, 11 hour flight. Um, you have to get up and walk around a lot, so forth. And I, I was always the guy, I've always been the guy, still am that guy, who when you're, a, when you're boarding one of those bigger planes and they board you in the middle door on purpose, now uh, they used to not do this and you had to walk through business class, but now they, they, you go in the middle and business class is here to your left and they say, you're not one of them and they direct you this way, right? And, and you go and you kind of do this number. Oh, wow, that looks amazing. Oh, oh, look, they can lay down. Oh my goodness. You know, as you go to your little, you know, tiny seat. But this particular day, Ronnie Golly, who does all of our, he's on our staff and he coordinates all of our international travel. He had racked up so many points over the course of traveling throughout the world as he has that he attributed some of his points to me, which is incredibly gracious. I told him he didn't have to do it. He insisted on it. And for the first time ever in my life, I flew across the Atlantic in business class. Come on. It was awesome. It was everything you thought it would be. I laid down the whole time, screen right in front of my face, 
any movie you want to watch. I mean, it was just incredible. They're serving you food constantly, like way more than those nobodies in the back, right? So <laughs> it was just incredible. But then something happened. You know, at some point over the Atlantic, maybe three, four hours in, I noticed something. I, know, I, I thought the whole time I was thinking, I was assuming that I was at the front of the plane. And that that was the, right, that, right up there, that would be the cockpit, Right? But then I was like, wait, hold on a second. There's a curtain there. I know that there's no curtain going there. What's going on? There's something else there. And so I started paying attention more. And at one point, one of the flight attendants came through that curtain into where we were. And she left the curtain open just a little bit. So I had to peek. <laughs> what is that? What's up there? And I, so I got out. I was like, oh, I got to stretch, uh, you know. And I kind of went up and I did this number and what I saw, <laughs> did, I didn't know it existed. I didn't, I didn't know there was a business class and on some planes, a first class. And what I saw, it was couches, it was a lounge. There was like pretty like mirrors and a bar and, and you didn't have to wear a seatbelt apparently. Like it was just like, oh my goodness. I had no idea. So I go back to my now pretty mundane business <laughs> class. And I really was wrestling with this whole like looking around and like, yeah, I mean, here we are, you know. <laughs> I'm not up there. You know, so, but that's, okay, here's the point. That's how pleasures work. There's always a first class out there that you're not there yet. And, it, and when you get there, it's not gonna be what you thought it was. Right? There's always a curtain that's beckoning you to say, hey, walk through here because it's better than this. And then you get in there and you go, this is incredible. And within a day or two, you're like, hold on. This isn't as great as I thought it was because here's the reality. Think about this. Because even if you're in first class on the plane and you're in there in that lush lounge and you're, you're, what you, you're still on the plane, you know what you still experience just like everybody else on the plane? Turbulence. Right? You're still flying the same flight. It's a metaphor for life is that pleasures always beckon us that what's up there is better than what I'm in now, but we're all experiencing the turbulence of life. And it doesn't matter what curtain you walk through, it's still rocky. It's still rocky. Still anxiety inducing every time that bump happens. It's, it's still the reality and it's never enough ever. It always leaves you longing for more. And so the preacher walks us through that reality and he gives his heart fully to everything that his eye beholds. Watch this. This is what he said. We're gonna walk through several of them that he walks through. The first one is this, the fleeting pleasure of laughter. Isn't that a weird place to start? You kind of expect that he'll hit some of the things that he will hit, but to start with laughter, isn't laughter a good thing? Yeah, well, the Bible talks about that, yes. Laughter, as the Proverbs say, laughter is medicine for the soul. Laughter is a good thing. Here's what you're gonna notice with every single one of these that we walk through, that the preacher walks through. Every single one is a gift from God. Every single one. It's a gift from God. What happens is this, is that we take the gift and instead of stewarding it, we try to possess it. Another way that it's said is by David Gibson in the book, Life, uh, Living Life Backwards. He says this, life in God's world is gift, not gain. 
And when we try to use the gifts of God that have been given to us in this life to bring a measure of joy and pleasure, and we try to gain from them in such a way that we feed our souls in ways that we weren't supposed to. In other words, we worship them. We look for meaning and purpose in them such that they're not created to give us. So a gift, instead of being possessed and stewarded, or instead of being stewarded, becomes a gift possessed in such a way that we try to feed our souls with it. Because laughter is a good thing. I love, one of my favorite things is listen to comedians. As I drive in the car, Nate Bargetsy right now, my favorite comedian, makes me laugh so hard, right? But the album ends, it's fleeting. Sometimes I keep thinking, when's he gonna come out with new content? I wanna, you know, and I just listen to the same thing over and over again. I know the jokes are gonna come. It doesn't have the same meaning as it did the first time I listened. Laughter is a gift from God, but it can be used to wound others. We know this, we've all experienced this, that we can use laughter as a way to wound, to hurt, sarcasm even. It's one of the most painful things that we can dish out to another person. Perhaps this very same author, if it is Solomon, wrote this in Proverbs 26. He said, like a madman who throws firebrands, arrows, and death is the man who deceives his neighbor and says, I'm only joking. Gosh, how many times have we done that or had that done to us? Somebody says something really painful, laughs about it and says, yeah, come on, man, stop being so serious. You know, I'm joking. But the damage has been done. The seed in the mind of that person has been planted. Here's the point. Laughter can be used as an escape. It can be used as a veil to dismiss the ugliness of sin. But here's the thing about laughter. It will never save us. It will never satisfy us. It's a gift. Laughing is good. But we can actually use comedy in such a way that it actually brings about sin in our hearts and the sin of others. Secondly, he hits this one. This was one you might expect more to be the first one, perhaps even, is the fleeting pleasure of alcohol. He says this in verse 3. He says, I search with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. My heart's still guiding me with wisdom. Perhaps some, some would interpret that to say that perhaps he, uh, he didn't get drunk as he gave himself to wine because he kept his wisdom about him. Maybe that's what that means. And how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. Regardless of whether he gave himself to drunkenness or not, he, he gave himself, here's the point, to a lifestyle that was predicated on alcohol that he had to have alcohol at a certain level, or at least he believed the lie that he had to have alcohol in order to take the edge off for the day or for the week. Alcohol was, became a crutch of some kind for him, that he was looking for it to give something that it wasn't designed to give. Because here's the thing, just like laughter, alcohol is a gift from God. Some of us, man, that makes us feel really uncomfortable because you grew up like I did where uh, we were taught in the denominations and traditions that we went beyond the scriptures because all the scriptures say is that, um, that drunkenness is a sin, but that drinking alcohol is actually permissible by God uh, according to your governing figures. But if you grew up like I did, man, you, you, you even looked at a bottle of alcohol, you felt like you needed to repent. You know, drinking alcohol at all would be a sin, but that's not what the Bible says. It's, it's abusing the alcohol. It's taking it to the state of drunkenness because if you're drunk on alcohol, you can't be drunk on the Holy Spirit. You can't be filled with the Spirit when you're filled with something else that's controlling you at that point. 
But here's the point, it's a gift from God to be stewarded. And when we begin to look to it to give us something that only God can give us, it fails us every single time. Just like laughter, it can't save us, it can't satisfy us. And I'll, I'll be honest with you, I'm concerned about this one. And, and I'm not concerned with, about this one as it pertains to the church at large. A lot of times I'll say things and I'll say, hey, I'm talking about the whole church, big picture, big C. I, no, I, I'm concerned about it with this church. I'm concerned about it in these circles that we run in, in these communities, because in the world, in the, in the workplaces, in the neighborhoods, in the communities, in the clubs that we run in, there is an abuse of alcohol happening and Christians are partaking as if it's not a big deal. Almost every shepherding case that we deal with here, shepherding meaning we're come along, coming alongside people that are struggling mightily and trying to help them. So many of them, are based in an abuse of alcohol, people turning to alcohol to give them what only God can give. Right here in this church, and I'm not saying that condemningly, I'm saying that because this morning, right here, statistically speaking, uh, there's many of us that this is true of, right here, right now, watching online, here in the building, whatever, and this would be the morning where you didn't expect to show up and the Holy Spirit to peg you in this way, but he's saying right now, it's time. You know it. You know you're unhealthy as it pertains to your relationship with alcohol. And today's the day that you say, I'm not gonna hide anymore. My spouse has been begging me to get help. Today's the day I'm gonna get help. I'm gonna talk to a pastor here at Perimeter. That pastor is gonna point me to a person who can help me. We are gonna step in with you and this is not a place to hide. This is a place to heal. Today's the day because it is a problem among us where we're turning to alcohol is a sense and a source of pleasure that God never intended. The preacher then moves on to the fleeting pleasure of beauty and accomplishment. Listen to what he says next. He says, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted them in, all, in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I got singers, both men and women. Here's the point. Uh, he's kind of recreating Eden. Eden, he's, he, he's taken all the resources that God has given him as a rich king, and he's pouring it into, can I create something that is so beautiful, that is so breathtaking to walk through, and all of his glory and all of his splendor and the pools and the waterfalls and the trees and the, all the things. And can I walk through it in such a way that I could actually be there and not leave wanting more? That all the cares of this life go away. And the reality is maybe temporarily, but eventually you walk out of the garden. Eventually the smell of the flowers goes away as you walk back into your house. Eventually the sound of the waterfall uh, lessens in the background as you tend to the matters of life that have to be dealt with. It's, it's, it's an escape, it's a retreat, but it's not a savior because we're still sinful. Eden was Eden pre-sin because there was no sin and we were fully satisfied, but we're not. We can't create anything on this earth that will fill our hearts the way that God does. I love that little line at the end there because it just kind of comes out of nowhere. He, he's, he's like, I got trees, I got pools, I got gardens, 
And then I got singers. You want singers? I got singers. You're like, what? Is he still on the alcohol? What's going on here? Like, why did, why did he say that? Like, what? I think it's, look, there was no radio back then. There was no device that you could just plug in, iTunes, whatever, Apple Music. Yeah, like, he was so rich and he had so much that people loved music back then just as much as they love music today, but you couldn't just press play whenever you wanted to. So what did he do? He hired singers to live with him and walk with him through the gardens everywhere he went. And he would assumedly just turn to him and say, okay, guys, I'm ready for you to sing, go. Men and women. He mentions both. Why? Because he's basically saying this. You want bass? I got it. You want soprano? Got it. Alto? Got it. Yeah. All of it. Yeah. High, low, whatever. They'll sing for me. At any point, at any time, in any day or any night, I got singers. And I got beauty. And I made all this. And it was vanity. The next one he points out is, he says he gave his heart fully to the fleeting pleasures of possessions and money. It says, I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. Just so it's clear, the Lord was grieved over the reality that whoever this man was possessed other humans. It's always grieved the heart of God. It was never okay. It was, a, it was a form of status back then. It was a gross form of status, but it was a form of status to possess anything and everything, including humans, to do the work for you. This man was wealthy beyond the wildest imaginations. He was rich more than we could imagine. Greg Easterbrook said this. He says, we have more of almost everything today we have more of almost everything today except happiness. Riken, who I quoted earlier, he says this, we are among the wealthiest and most privileged peoples in the world, but we are far less content and rarely as happy as those who possess a fraction of what we do. If you've ever traveled to different places, even in America, but throughout the world as well, if you've traveled anywhere where there's great poverty and you've visited Christians there, and it's sometimes not even Christians. And they have nothing. Like you've been on a mission trip, right? Many of us, we have this story and it's, it's, an, it's true. It, it really does happen. We have this story where we say, okay, I'm gonna go on this mission trip and I'm gonna be the one who comes in and impacts them and we leave. And what do we say every time? Oh, they didn't, I didn't impact them, they impacted me. And what do you hear people say almost always? What follows that sentence? They impacted me. It's that I watch them in their poverty. They have nothing, and yet they are so full of joy. They are so full of joy in the Lord. And I look at them and I go, how? And you know what they do? They look at us and they say, I know why you don't have the joy I have, because you got too much stuff in the way. Just too much stuff. This isn't a new thing for Americans. Alex, uh, Alexis de, de Tocqueville, when he toured the United States in the 1830s, he noticed what he called the strange melancholy, melancholy that haunted Americans in the midst of their abundance. The French statesman wisely concluded that the complete joys of this world will never satisfy 
the heart. The average American right now today, the average American is richer and has more possessions than any average citizen in the history of the world. Yet the 21st century has already been termed the generation of anxiety. We have so much, in some ways even more than this Solomonic figure. But we're not happy, we're not satisfied, we're not fulfilled, there is ultimately no meaning. He then hits the fleeting pleasure of sex. Verse eight says, in many concubines, the delight of the children of man. I just wanna continue to be real here. Like guys, let's, let's think about this for a second. Men, I'm talking to you. Would you be honest that if you've read this passage before, even if you're reading it for the first time now, there's a part of you in your flesh that when you, if you know the story of Solomon, you know that he had about a thousand concubines in addition to his hundreds of wives. And the concubines existed for one purpose, to give him sex whenever he wanted it. And I want you to be honest, there is a part of your flesh that goes, man, wouldn't that be awesome? Oh, can you imagine that life, right? That's what our sinful hearts just wanna grasp onto and just say, I just can't imagine how amazing that would be. Really? Well, keep reading Solomon's writings. Even here, he says, I had the concubines. They were the, the, the delight of the children, the sons of man. They were everything that the heart of man longs for. Vanity. I'll quote Riken again, listen to what he says. He says, we have as many opportunities as Solomon had to indulge in sinful and selfish desires. In fact, listen to this, in fact, maybe Solomon would be envious of us. Generally speaking, we live in better homes, with better furniture, with climate control. We dine at larger buffet tables. We listen to a much wider variety of music on demand. As far as sex is concerned, we can download an endless parade of virtual partners, a harem for the imagination. Everything is offered to us. Nothing is unavailable. So let me ask you this question. Are you satisfied? You know the answer, it always leaves us wanting more, always. We're chasing after something that was never meant to satisfy. We'll do it within the context of marriage too, in two ways. One, we'll put demands on our spouse, usually the male on the female, for sex that God never intended for them to give. That you're looking, and here's the way to say it, you're looking for salvation in your wife through the means of sex to give you meaning that you can only find in God. And so you're producing a really unhealthy marriage at the footstool of worship of sex. The other way that we'll do it within the context of marriage too is that yes, of course, promiscuous sex out there is something that God didn't design us for because it robs us of the pleasure that he's ultimately wanting to give us. But within the confines of marriage, we'll do it with our faces in front of a screen addicted to porn. Statistically speaking, again, more than half the people in this room are addicted to pornography. It's just not a throwaway statement, it, it's significant. And we live in hiding and the enemy is eating our lunch. And just like the person that I talked to a moment ago who knows that, okay, I didn't expect to show up this morning and be pegged by the Holy Spirit. I didn't know that today was the day that the healing begins for you. If addiction to sex is your thing, 
today's the day. That you come out of hiding and you say, this is robbing me of all the joy that I think it's going to give me and never does. And it is ruining my marriage. And I have to talk to someone about it. And I don't care what falls apart in the short term, the long-term gain of the pleasure that comes to the healing that only God can give is worth it. And so today it starts. Because the, the fleeting pleasure of sex will never be, never be what I long for it to be. He closes with the fleeting pleasure of success because he says this, so I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. There was no one greater than this man. And if there's anything that we idolize in this culture of ours in America, is it not success? Accomplishment, fame, Oh my goodness, I'm not, look, I got no issue. I just, what, whatever, it is what it is. But what are we talking about most about this game tonight? It's not the players, it's the celebrity of Taylor Swift, is it not, right? We worship celebrities, fame, success, you've made it. And has there ever been a better example of how it's not what we think it is than that, than that interview about 20 years ago with Tom Brady. He had just won his third Super Bowl ring. He had accomplished everything. He was the most celebrated sports figure on the planet. And he's being interviewed by 60 Minutes and the guy interviewing him, at one point, Brady begins to pontificate about how there has to be more. There has to be more. I've accomplished everything that there is to accomplish that I ever dreamed of. And all I can think is there has to be more. And the guy interviewing him said, well, what do you think it is? And this was Brady's response. I wish I knew. I wish I knew. Success will never give us what the Savior will, ever. And we can dream about it and we can long for it. And if he gives it to us, we will arrive there and we will say, first class isn't what I thought it was. There's always another curtain. The turbulence of life doesn't go away. Here's the preacher's conclusion, verses 10 and 11. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and striving after the wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So what's the answer? What's the answer? Is the answer that God is just this complete killjoy that doesn't want us to experience any pleasure in this life? Is that what we're supposed to conclude? That we're to live monk type lives where there was great things that the monks did over the centuries and have done over the centuries where they're helping us see some things about God that we don't naturally see, but the monks missed it on this front. They kind of buy the lie that, they're, that to really be closer with God, you gotta let go of all pleasure. But that's actually not what the Bible teaches. It's not what God designed. In fact, it's the opposite. God actually designed us in his image to be full of pleasure, joy, immeasurable. But here's the key. What is the focal point? Who is the aim? What is the, the focus of the pleasure? Which way is it pointed? It's a little part in the very first verse that you might've missed. Let me read the first verse again. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Here it is. You might've missed it. Enjoy yourself. The preacher, all of the pleasure was focused on 
self. And when everything exists to the pleasure of self, nothing has meaning. It will never satisfy. First question of the Shorter Catechism, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, that helps us understand the whole of the Bible in one sentence. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. Take pleasure in him forever. When the focal point of our pleasure, of our joy, of our satisfaction, of our, our, our fulfillment, of our meaning is him, then all of a sudden the pleasure lasts. It doesn't f- fly away. It's not fleeting when it's on him. But we're a self-centered people that always want to make it about us. And so therefore pleasure leaks. But in Jesus, it never leaks. This is what God is telling us in Psalm 16, verse 11. This is what he's trying to get us to understand when he says this. The psalmist says this. In your, in your presence, O God, is fullness of joy. In your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You want to you have a life of pleasure? Doesn't mean the heart goes away. Doesn't mean the turbulence stops. You're still in this life. You're still in this body of death. You're still struggling with sin. But you want to have pleasure, immeasurable, inward realities of pleasure and joy. It's in the presence of God. Oh, God, would you help us get there? Not that we have to fight and work to attain it. It actually means that we give up. We stop chasing after every little thing that we think will give us what only you can. And so in helping us get there, really what we're asking you to do, Lord, is would you help us, would you help us die to ourselves? Would you help us to give up on all the things that we keep believing will give us these things? And you, oh God, you're the great pleasure, the great joy of our souls. So forgive us, oh God. Help our hearts even now as we come to this table that reminds us the extent to which you went to be able to pour out your joy, your pleasure upon us in the person of Jesus. It's in his name we pray, amen. That Psalm 1611 that we just quoted there, I want you to hear it again. In your presence, Lord, there is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. Let's connect some dots here. Who is at the right hand of the Father? Jesus. God's pleasure is fixated on his son. All right, let's connect another dot. If you've believed upon the son as the one and only way into salvation to this this redemption of life and soul and body, the forgiveness of sins, life everlasting, if you've believed upon this Jesus, then the Bible says that where are we? We are in Christ. So I want you to see that beautiful picture. In his right hand are pleasures forevermore. The father is fixated on the pleasure that he has for the son, and we are in Christ, so therefore his his pleasure is fixated on us through the work of Jesus. This table is a declaration. It is God screaming at us. (laughs) 
from these elements as they represent the body and the blood of Jesus. I came so that you may have life and have it abundantly. I came so that you would experience the pleasure that I have in the son and that you would be adopted as my sons and daughters as well and that my pleasure would be bestowed upon you. So come and eat, be nourished spiritually to remind your hearts, your wayward, fickle hearts, my wayward, fickle heart, remind, oh yes, this, he is where satisfaction is found. He is the only one who gives meaning to all of this meaninglessness. If you're not a follower of Jesus, you haven't believed upon him, then we would ask you not to take these elements because the scripture instructs us in that way. Because in doing so, you would be eating and drinking judgment upon yourself. Similarly, if you are a Christian, you have believed upon Christ, but you've been living a life of unrepentant sin and you're not really wanting, desiring to stop, then we would say, would you take this time and pray and ask the Lord to soften your heart? But for repentant sinners who know, oh yeah, the bread of life, the one who satisfies my soul, as Jesus says in 635, John 635, the bread of life is Jesus. If you eat of him, you'll never be hungry. So come, eat. And let this be a foretaste of that great banquet to come. Because here's what Jesus says. He's, on that night that he was betrayed, he took the bread, he broke it. He says, I break my body, do this in remembrance of, of me as you take and eat it. And then he takes the third cup, the cup of redemption that was the wine cup. And he says, uh, this, is, this represents the new covenant in my blood. And then he says this, as often as you eat it and drink it, you'll be proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. And then he makes another promise. He says, I will never drink of this cup again until I am with you. Where? At that wedding banquet that'll happen when he comes again and all of his people are with him. And what we're doing here is we're just eating really bad tasting wafers and drinking juice that we just aren't real sure where it comes from. But <laughs> it's just a little taste. It's just a little taste of that banquet to say that day we'll dine on him in full right now. We're dining on him in part to remind our souls he is the Lord who satisfies. Father, would you help us to come and to take these elements as a reminder of who you are, the bread of life, the all-sufficient one who satisfies our longing hearts. Do your work in us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Sermon Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and to find other sermons from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.